Now, the year is October 2016. Uh, Peter and his two friends, Adley and Sheila, are visiting the home of his late mother-in-law. As they enter the house, uh, they sense there is someone there. So they proceed immediately to the middle of the house, only to see a man holding a bag in his hand. The man looks puzzled and then tries to run past them. Uh, Peter trips him with his leg and then the man, of course, falls to the ground. The three friends immediately pile on top of this man and as they hold him down, they cry out to the neighbors to call out to the police. Our three uh, have a go heroes uh, have just caught the prolific burglar Stephen Ward. Our heroes soon win national fame and are even given an award for, for bravery by the police. Why all this praise on just catching this prolific burglar? Well, the reason, of course, is that our three musketeers, as they were called by the Daily Mail, have a combined edge of 229. There is something in all of us that warms our hearts about such unexpected stories of bravery. Stories of weak people who put their life on the line to save us from evildoers. Now, we are currently going through Judges, and as you know, uh, this exciting book, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I hope you are enjoying going through Judges. It's this, this amazing book. It is an historical account of God's, of, of, of God's people after the death of Joshua. As they settle in the land of Canaan. But as we have seen, it is more than that. Judges is really a story of how God uses weak and broken people in unexpected ways to accomplish his purposes and ultimately point us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now today we are in Judges chapter 3 verse 12 to 30 that's in front of you. And we see there that God raises a weak and unexpected deliverer. The question we are asking this evening is, what shall we do with the weak and unexpected Savior? Well, come with me uh, on this adventure again, taking us back 3,300 years ago. And let us see how it helps us answer that question. What shall we do with the weak and unexpected Savior. The first thing we see is that sin enslaves us all. That's the first heading in front of you there in, the, in those sheets that you've got. Sin enslaves us all. The people of Israel are enjoying a golden age of peace that has lasted for 40 years under Nathaniel. When peace that peace is suddenly broken when suddenly an old enemy walks through the door. Look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The key word there is again, I don't know if you picked that up when Brother Peter was reading it. He said, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They, they can't shake their sin off. Sin is tenacious. It never goes away. Sin must be the most boring thing in the universe because there's nothing new about it. We are all born sinners and sin all the time. No matter how much love and care God gives me, I cannot help but sin against him. All human beings are addicted to sin. Sin is more addictive than any toxic substance. And like all forms of slavery, all sin damages us. Look at verse 12 continues. He says to us, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God never tolerates sin. So again, he gives up the people of Israel to this foreign oppressor. It was Cushan him last week. Now we see God is raising up the king of Moab. Sin is like sowing off a branch that supports us. It cuts us off from our only help, God himself. And that is what's happening to the people of Israel. God is strengthening the king of Moab because in the end, nothing happens without God. God is fully in charge. He controls all things. He controls the destinies of all nations, including oppressive regimes. Kim Jong-un is in power in North Korea because God has allowed it. Mugabe is now 93 years old in Zimbabwe. Uh, Mrs. Mugabe said last month, one day when God decides that Mugabe dies, who have his corpse appear as a candidate on the ballot paper, she said. Well, the wife is saying Mugabe may rule from his coffin. Well, that may be true, but only if God allows it. God, of course, allows these regimes. doesn't mean that he approves of them. God does not approve the evil action of these leaders, but he is completely in charge over all leadership. So those who trust in God have nothing to fear. The problem is that Israel does not trust in God, and, and so we see here that the king of Moab moves in for the kill. Look at verse 13. We're told there, it says in verse 13, uh, and he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that is Jericho. Israel is looking at this defeat now from Moab, and they must be shocked. They say, look, we left Moab long ago on the other side of the Jordan. That's where Moab is. And now they are here in Jericho. They have done exactly as we did. They've crossed now the Jordan, and they have now taken Jericho, the first city we captured in the Promised Land. What is happening to us? And it only gets worse. Look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. You see, they are not only enslaved to sin, they are now living under brutal colonialism by a small nation that is in fact a distant relative. Moab came out of Lot, same as the Ammonites. What's happened here is that a small relative, 
really a nobody. God even told them to ignore Moab as they were coming in because it was so small. Now he's rising up and he's being strengthened by God to, as, as, as to discipline them. This is humiliation. All sin humiliates us because spiritual slavery always leads to other forms of slavery. You see, sin always presents itself as freedom, but in the end it robs us the very happiness we crave for. Our greed leads us into debt problems. Our glutton destroys our health. Our anger often leads to divorce and loneliness. Our addictions destroys our relationship. Spiritual sin has devastating effect for other parts of our lives. The grand delusion of every act of sin is that we can be disloyal to God and everything will still work out in the end. But sin only delivers slavery and pain. And not just in this life, but also in the life to come. In the end, those who live a lifestyle of sin prove they have no life with God and are headed for the eternal slavery of hell. But here is the good news, and it is good news. Sin is not the last word. And this is our second truth. Sin enslaves us all, point one. But our second truth says we are never without help. We are never without help. The rule of Eglon is too painful for Israel. Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. I think it's Richard Baxter who said, suffering unbots the door of the heart so that the word of God has an easier entrance. Well, God is suddenly knocking the door on Israel's heart, and they are beginning to hear. They are finding that all this living in idolatry cannot deliver them from trouble. Verse 13 says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They are crying out to God now to help them. The rule of Moab has become too painful for them. And God listens, and, uh, and he does it again. He does it again. Look at that. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. God listens and listens and raises this deliverer, this savior, to free them from their humiliating slavery. Now, you will keep seeing God doing this in judges. Don't get bored by it. Bear with my preaching, but don't get bored by this important truth. This is your hope in your struggle to sin. When you're enslaved to sin, this is your hope. You are not without help. You see, God never shuts the door to his people when they cry for help to be delivered from sin. And though the people of Israel are more worried about the physical slavery to Eglon, God knows the deep deliverance they really need is from the power of sin and its effect. God has a relentless desire not just to save us, forgive us, redeem us, and deliver us from sin. But he wants to be with us face to face, toe to toe, pen to pen, breath upon breath. 
God is fully committed to us as our ever-present help in our time of need. And what is amazing here is that through our judges is that God is extremely patient with us. Friends, are you not amazed as I am that God keeps saving the people of Israel even though they keep sinning against him? God is so patient with his people. I have let God down so many times in my own life. I'm so grateful for his patience because without that, I would be totally lost. The truth is that this side of heaven, I I, I myself struggle with sin even when I don't want to. And though Jesus has clothed me with garments of righteousness, I often, and I often do not want to sin. I, I sometimes do. And God is always there, reaching out to me, lifting me out from the miry bog of sin, as he's doing here. The grace of God is the only thing I have going for me. It is the only thing you have going for you. And as we go through Judges, I hope you will be struck, as I have been struck studying this book, about two things. Israel keeps sinning, and God keeps saving them. They are not without help, and neither are you. If you are a follower of Jesus this evening, you are God's people, and you are not without help. God hears your prayers. He is your help. So, sin enslaves us all. Point one, point two, we are never without help. That was our first two truths. But how does God help us? How does this help come to us? Well, this brings us to our third truth. God delivers us through weakness. God delivers through weakness. We see here that the deliverer or, or savior God has chosen to save Israel is a surprising choice, to say the least. Look at verse 15. And the Lord, see, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised the river up for them. Ayud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The man is from the tribe of Benjamin. What tribe is Othaniel? From last week, Judah. So he's not from the designated leader of the people. Verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 1 says what? Who shall go before us? God says, Judah will lead. But here we see God now picking from a different tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. But what is even more surprising is not only that it's from sort of, if you like, a backward tribe, as it were. It's now picking here, because in fact, the tribe of Benjamin has been a disaster so far. It failed to subdue Jerusalem properly in verse 21 of chapter 1, I think, you find there. But not only are they speaking, you know, someone from stragglers, he's now picking a left-handed man. You see, the literal meaning there is not, is one who cannot use his right hand. What the author of Judges here is doing is, 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 is telling us is that this man is not, you know, he's not born a lefty. The translation doesn't help you that you've got in front of you. It's not that he's not, it's not that he's born a lefty. Rather, he is a disabled warrior. 
God has opted for weakness rather than strength. And he has put Ehud in an interesting position. Look at verse 15. goes on to say, The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. You see, Eglon here is forcing Israel to pay tributes. And these tributes are in form of agricultural produce that they now bring because they are living under a slavery system now. You know, it's the Hunger Games, so to speak, of, of, of these times. And they're having to bring all these, you know, tributes in agriculture to him. But what's interesting here is that the fact that Ayud is disabled gives him access to the king. Because everyone knows Ayud is harmless. You know, we can imagine the conversation that's taking place between Eglon and the people of Israel. The king says to them, I want someone from Israel to bring tribute to me. Someone weak. Who have you got? And the people of Israel answer, we have you, he is disabled, sire. Someone like that. He, he can bring it to you. He's no harm. He's harmless. We just, he'll bring the tribute to you. So they send Eglon, they send Ayu to see uh, Eglon, so to speak. So they send Ayud to Eglon, but Ayud senses an opportunity to strike a blow for freedom. Here is the moment to change the course of history. Look at verse 16. And Ayud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now the sword that Ayud is carrying is custom-made double-edged for maximum effect and short enough to be concealed on his right hand for easy access with his left thigh. You know, remember, he cannot use his right hand, so he's put the sword here so that he can reach out to it like, like that. That's what is, is done. And at the same time, and the time comes, of course, for Ayu to meet the king. Look at this, 17. Ayud now is ready to go and he's properly dressed up and he, he meets the king in verse 17 and he says, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Now some of us, uh, on the large side as it were, uh, attempted to say, thank you, author of Judges. The man is fat. Next point, please. Baha, but not so fast. You see, in our society, being slim is, is, is a wonderful thing. It's a sign of good health. So we think the author of Judges saying Eglon is very fat must surely be a derogatory statement. No. What the author of Judges is telling us here is that Eglon lives large. It's a bit like, actually, in most cultures in the world where I come from, if you're very big, you know, you're living well. It's a, it's a sign of good health, actually, in some cultures. And in the Near East, where, where, where this is happening, you know, they think Eglon, you know, is prospering. Sadly, his prosperity is through oppressing others. So back to the meeting. Ayud has finished presenting tributes to our very large king and leaves the palace only to come back with a new request. Look at verse 18 to verse 19. And when Ayud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal 
and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, clearly this is a lie. <laughs> and Eglon falls for it. Look at verse 19. Because, you know, Ehud has a plan and this is a lie. Look at verse 19. And, and Eglon says this, and he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. The king says, leave me alone. I want to hear this man, this message. He's so excited about what Ehud is about to tell him. Eglon is thinking, look, this man is disabled. What can Ehud possibly do to me? Well, he gets the answer in verse 20 to verse 21. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Eglon is wrong-footed. The precision of the text in verse 21 highlights that it's the weakness of Ehud that allows him to strike down Eglon. And now it gets very ugly. Verse 22 tells us, And the yield also went in after the blood, and the fat closed over the blood, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the excrement came out. It is instant death. The knife has gone in deep, and the most likely explanation of what's happening here in this verse, in verse 22, is that actually Eglon has been carved right open by the dagger. He can't scream. He can't shout. Everything is there to be seen. The job is done. Ayud, our disabled assassin, now makes the getaway. The getaway. Look at verse 23. And Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof, the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Ehud, what's happened is that he's killed Eglon now. He's inside there. He locks the door from inside. And he now makes a getaway, we think possibly via the roof. <laughs> it is a, he's a masterstroke assassin. He's done the job. Now the Eglon servants return. In verse 24. Verse 24 tells us that when he had gone, that's Ehud, the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought surely he's leaving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. They are baffled. Why are the doors locked? Is the king sleeping? Is he perhaps eaten too much and is somewhat stuck on the toilet seat as it were? As they wait and wait, the smell from the room is probably overpowering them and it's too much. So they run out of patience and they unlock the door and are shocked at what they see. Look at verse 25. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Eglon is lying dead on the floor, drenched in blood, and the smell is overpowering. They shared his life, and now they share in his humiliation. 
The day of mourning for Moab is a day of deliverance for Israel. God has delivered his people through the weakness of a disabled assassin who is now safely away. Look at verse 26. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Seirah. We should note in passing here that God delights in using physically and mentally disabled people for his glory. Moses stammered. Samson was blind when he delivered Israel from the Philistine. Who see? Who come to that? Elijah and David suffered from depression. And Jesus radiated his glory among the disabled in the New Testament. I think it's Johnny Erickson Tada, a quadrupedic, who says, Our Savior chose to flash his credentials as our Messiah through his ministry to disabled people. A disability magnifies God's grace. We, in our wheelchairs, get to prove how great and how trustworthy God is. Do you have a physical disability or suffer from some mental health? Your disability is an asset for God's work in this church and beyond. We have seen what God is doing with our brother Samuel. Out of his weakness, God has been able to use him to bring people here who do not know Jesus. And God is being glorified. My dear brothers and sisters, what are you doing with your struggle? What are you doing with your mental health challenge that you may have? What are you doing with that infirmity? Instead of just you know, mourning about that, what are you doing for God's grace, for God's glory? That is your asset. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what God has given you. God has given somewhere or that as his gift. Stop complaining. Start asking God. Help me. To be your aid, but without the dagger. Without the dagger. The main point of the passage, of course, is that God delivers his people through weakness. Aud is pointing us forward to the arrival of the weakest savior of all, Jesus. Now, in some sense, Aud's character and methods are so different from Jesus. We are saying, Jesus here, yeah, I can't see him. I mean, in the assassin, I just, I can't see him here. Ayud is devious. Jesus is honest. Ayud is a violent assassin. Jesus is a man of peace. But you see, Ayud's story ultimately foreshadows how God uses weak people for his glory. And therefore, it's a foreshadow of Jesus, our Savior, the weakest Savior of all, who comes as a vulnerable infant, you know, dodging Herod's murderous prods. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that he had no beauty when he grows up, that we should even desire of him. 
And in the greatest moment of weakness on the cross, Jesus dies and breaks our spiritual slavery from our own spiritual eglons of sin, death, and hell, and Satan. Out of his weakness, we've been made strong. In his weakness, he has freed us. So how should we then respond to our weak and unexpected Savior? Well, we must do what Israel does here with Ayud. And this is our final truth. What does Israel do with Ayud? Well, we must follow him. Follow him. Ayud is riding on. That's our final point. We must follow him. Ayud is riding on as a new national hero. But he wants to ensure the job is finished. Look at verse 27 to verse 28 there. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Ehud is saying, God has delivered you from Eglon's slavery. Now receive your freedom by following me, your God-chosen leader. And the people agree with Eglon and they go, they, Ehud, they, they, too many E's. They, they agree with Ehud and, and they agree with him and they go to war. Look at verse 28 to verse 20, 29 there. And so they went down after him and seized the force of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to, to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. This is a massive slaughter of the Moabite soldiers. And in fact, notice there it says they were what? Able-bodied, strong men. I think it's emphasizing that these Moabite soldiers have been well-fed by Eglon. And what God is doing here is turning the tables on Moab. The Moabites prospered, but now they are too fat to run, so to speak. Verse 30 tells us, so that Moab was subdued that day at the end of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. The people of Israel follow God's chosen leader and now start to enjoy another golden age of peace. This one will now last for two generations. Well, in the same way, we who have received the great salvation from sin through Jesus, our everlasting aid. We must now follow Jesus and do what? Put to death what remains. You see, for the people of Israel, following Ayud meant killing in God's name to free themselves from slavery. And indeed, Ayud murders Eglon in cold blood to free his people. But God is not asking you to kill anyone. We are not instruments of God's judgment. That's why this is happening, judges, because God at the same time as freeing them is using them as instruments of his judgment on sin. 
us here now on this side of the cross, we are recipients of God's mercy through God the Son who dies on the cross for us. So what Jesus is now asking all his followers is to put to death any Moabites of sin in us by surrendering to his leadership. You know, just as Israel had received freedom under Ehud when Eglon is killed, but the Moabites were still needed to be tidied up. Same as us, we have received total freedom in Christ. But we must now put any remaining Moabites remnants of sin in our lives by surrendering to the leadership of our everlasting aid, Jesus Christ. Friends, you will never experience victory over sin as long as you are Lord and Master over your life. I I want you to get this right. The victory over Moab is completed only after the people surrender to Ehud's leadership. Victory in your life is only possible with radical surrender to the Lordship of Christ. If you're struggling in any area, the issue is not the addiction, the issue is not the other person, the issue is your heart is corrupted and is not willing to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's a heart issue. As Bonhoeffer says, my favorite quote, which you should all know by heart, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So where in your life do you need to surrender? Is it your money, your time, your hobbies, your family, your social media use, your friends? Well, Jesus says, follow me. He's saying that to you this evening. And that is not a metaphor. Now, I know this is a hard truth for many of us to accept. We hear it here, Sunday, and then just forget about that. Jesus says, follow me. But I want you to see something here. I think the people found it easy to follow Ehud. Because they look at this man out of all his weakness, defeating this king of Moab. They must say, God must be working. Must be working. They can see the grace of God there. You see, when we understand the grace of God, which has come to us in the weakness of Jesus, when we look at that cross, when you see it, when you see God being crucified for your sin, when you take that in, I think it's easy to respond, to say no to sin. I'm not making easy of sanctification. But I know the experience of victory I've experienced in my life and answering to his radical call to surrender has only come on contemplating his weakness on the cross. God becoming man to die for me, a sinner. And that's what we need to do. We need to take a serious look at the weakness of Christ on the cross. And then everything else in our life will fall into place. We've seen in the story of Ayu that sin enslaves all of us. But we are never without help. 
Because God has come to us through the weakness of this man, Jesus. What do we do with the weak and unexpected Savior? Well, we must surrender and follow him wholeheartedly. Amen.